Let's get into our series, Empowering Women. Uh, let me try to catch some of y'all up. How many have been here for the, the last two weeks? Last two weeks you've been here? Okay, good. Awesome. All right. And uh, you know, what's cool is that I've heard a lot of good feedback from the guys. Uh, my goal in Empowering Women was not to emasculate men. <laughs> and so I really feel that a lot of you guys have felt activated and not necessarily emasculated. And so just so you know, that was the objective, was to build a strong partnership between men and women, husbands, wives, you know, fathers with their daughters, you know, mothers with their sons, just strengthen really the family and the spiritual family has been one of the objectives here. But, uh, but kind of an overarching thing, the goal was to empower women in their divine calling, that women have gifts, women have a call, women can do incredible things, and women can lead. Can I have an amen? amen. And so um, this has been a really um, powerful series for me personally. Uh, just to go through quickly, I kind of gave a big idea, and it, and it has a controversial component to it, but basically the big idea is that, um, you know, you, you can be created. Biology makes us a male or female, but it doesn't necessarily make us a man or a woman. Just because we can't, two people can come together and create a child doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be good parents, a good mother, a good father, right? And which means, or you could d- deduce that, that means there have to be some special attributes or characteristics in addition to that biology that make you successful as a man or make you uh, effective as a man or as a woman. So you can be a guy hunting in the woods. You can have a beard and shave. You can have a bow and arrow, but you might still be a boy. It's quiet in this Catholic church right now. Uh, and so, so what I'm trying to say is there are these characteristics that we want to see and unpack. And so we took time to kind of unpack the role of a man, unpack the role of a woman and and, and the role of the man uh, being less about leadership, more about headship. And we drew a distinction between headship and leadership. And headship is sacrificial love. And headship is protective care. And if the guy was focusing on his role, the woman wouldn't want to liberate herself from him. She would, want to, she would be more welcoming and it would be much easier to come alongside him versus under him. Does that make sense? And if the woman understood her role, that, that a helper is not inferior By design, because God was a helper and God helps his children. If God's helping his children as a helper, then how could the role therefore be inherently inferior? It's not inferior. It's a very significant role. In fact, when you're helping somebody, by virtue of you helping them means they're weaker and they need your help. This is good stuff and you're getting it all early and nobody's saying amen. So I'll amen myself. Good job. Amen. And so... Helper is, is a good thing, and that's part of the role of a woman, and, and her job is to come alongside as the perfect fit for a man. In other words, hand in glove, not two fists. So it's about perfect fit, not a massive fight. And what it's been historically, because of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, the, 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 one of the consequences of sin were these curses. And one of the curses is that the man would try to dominate, rule, be overbearing, and the woman would try to usurp the authority and resist that authority. And and as a result of that friction, because of those curses, there are these hurdles that men and women have to overcome. Men have to overcome certain hurdles. But last week I talked, ladies, if you weren't here, I talked about the hurdles you have to overcome of comparison and perfectionism. Your hurdles as a result of the fall, uh, the curse, a curse is simply a consequence of sin. 
And so this curse is just kind of, there's this tendency, this natural inclination for you to be prone towards uh, perfectionism, prone towards, you know, comparison, you know, you know, just taking pictures all the time of your best features and then comparing them to somebody else. That is a, it's a part of the fall. It's a part of the curse. And so these hurdles, we talked about how to overcome. But one curse that we talked about that I think was significant in particular to this, this whole series, and I'll get into it a little bit more today, was one of the consequences is that there would be this hostile relationship between the serpent and the woman that started in the fall. It basically says that, that there would be a hostility between Satan and the woman. In other words, there was going to be a distinction that in essence, Satan hates women more than he hates men. And so what's behind a lot of the oppression, what's behind a lot of depression, what's behind a lot of the objectification of women and the, the, you know, the, the disconnect with women and the women not being able to come out and stand tall is Satan himself. So if you're new here, like, you don't hear that word a lot in church. Uh, we believe in, there's an enemy, there's an adversary. We believe if you can't, you can't really fully embrace good if you don't believe evil exists. And so there's an enemy behind this, and it's been there, he's been there, and there's this, been this spiritual implication and this enmity, this hostility, this opposition between Satan and the woman. And this war has been going on for centuries, between the devil and women. And this, host, this hostility rage, rages today. So in the garden we talked about last week, that's where uh, not only men, uh, uh, you know, but women lost their voice, their role, their significance in the fall. And everything kind of went out of order there. The perfect design that God had, hand in glove, it became, uh, you know, body blows and fist fights and, and arguments and, and, and control and, and resistance and all that stuff. It was all disordered there, all came out of its perfect design. And then in the second garden, Jesus, who is the ultimate liberator of women, always had a plan to restore and redeem that which was lost in the fall, not just for men, but for women. Can I have an Amen. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he got on the cross and died physically, he died to himself in the garden. And so the things that were disordered, the things that were distorted, he fixed those. And, and so, so when he died to himself, while he could have resisted authority, usurped authority, uh, asserted his own will, he submitted his will to God the Father. He entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he reordered that which was out of order. And while the enemy was nipping on the heel, a prophecy spoken of in Genesis 3, Jesus in that moment was putting his heel on Satan saying, nope, you're not going to have mankind and you're not going to have women either because I'm putting things back in order. And so I'm going on the cross and I'm taking the curse upon myself for mankind, which includes male and female. They'll all be set free. And he died and he paid for sin. He paid the consequence of that, of that sin was paid for, past, present, and future. And then on the third day, he rises, he resurrected, which really validates our faith. It verifies our faith. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible says uh, the preaching of the gospel is, is useless. Our faith is worthless if it not for the resurrection. Because he is who he says he was. So I don't follow Jesus just because of his teachings. I follow Jesus because he did what he said he did. And the proof is in the pudding. 
because there was a following and fellowship that changed the world after that out of this little, you know, region of the world. It exploded to be the most influential faith on the planet to this day. Because of one man died and rose on the third day, amen? But when he came out, the significance of that all by itself changed the world. But isn't it amazing that when he came out, he reveals and proclaims that message to a woman first. And it wasn't because she just showed up first and she got up early. No, God, Jesus, the liberator of women, was trying to send a message to women. And he sent that message not only to a woman, but he sent it to a woman who was a prostitute and a demoniac. That means she was jacked up, y'all. That means I don't care, ladies, gentlemen, whoever, how jacked up you are, we serve a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer who takes that which was broken and he fixes it, that which was lost and he finds it, that which was distorted and he makes it right again. That's the God that we serve. And he comes out and says, Mary Magdalene, I want you to go tell all my brothers, tell all those people about this good news. And she went out and she did so. It was a big deal. And so later, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 says, Christ has redeemed all y'all. That's the, that's the southern version of the NIV. <laughs> he redeemed all y'all from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. That's what he did. And then in Galatians 3.28, he says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. In other words, there's no more distinction the things that were breaking people apart, race, uh, background, uh, gender, no, 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 no. You're all one in Christ Jesus now. You all have the same bloodline. You all have the same, the same uh, the thing that unites us all is because of Christ. And it's amazing how many people believe the theology of what I'm saying, that Christ was a curse breaker, and he, and he put the curse upon himself. And, and, and we understand that Jesus broke the curse. That's kind of your first fill in the blank is that Jesus broke the curse. But it's amazing. We believe Jesus broke the curse, but some people don't believe Jesus broke the curse over women. And so this series is trying to highlight that it's for everyone, male or female. Can I have an amen out there? But women sometimes still to this day struggle to be seen, struggle to be heard. Not too long ago in in our region, 1967, there was a woman named Kathy Schwitzer. She was the first female to compete and complete the Boston Marathon. She had a numbered entry, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because men resisted her. In fact, uh, the official, one of the officials, Jock Semple, this got a lot of press at that particular time, attempted to stop her and pull her out of the race, literally physically rip her, her bib off of her, and her boyfriend pushed him away, and she continued to run the race and completed the race. But the reason he was doing that was because he believed she was too weak to compete or complete the race. They thought maybe her body would fail and she would fall out. And that's a small story in comparison. Now, in 1972, women were allowed to officially run in the race. That's not that long ago that, that's not that long ago, everybody. A lot of women have run the race since. Women in this room have run the race. And, and so, so, but story after story we could tell, much more graphic than that, about women who've been held back. Uh, and it began in the garden is what I'm trying to tell you. 
And, 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 and it changed, a lot of this changed during the times of Jesus. But during the times of Jesus, a little before, a little after, might have been some of the worst times for women historically. So I kind of want to take you back a little bit because we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul and his impact on liberating women. We're going to talk about some of the tough questions or statements that he made that some people, especially in Christianity, highlight. We've emphasized more what happens in the home today, more what happens in the local church and how to empower people in the local church. But according to Jewish custom, somewhere around 50 AD, this is, this is real, uh, it's not opinion, this is just real, but it would have been better to be born a dog than a woman in 50 AD. Imagine how, this is what people believed, imagine how a young boy growing up, his paradigm that he might have towards women when that was the mentality or the attitude. It was considered intolerable for women and men to assemble at the same time in the same location. Different sages during the, the ages of this time, from Daniel all the way after uh, the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ, they, I put some quotes in my notes of things that I was able to find that they said. Things they said were like, the world cannot exist without male and female, but happy is he whose children are sons, and woe to him whose children are, are, are daughters." He who teaches his daughter the Torah leads her to lewdness. Let the words of the Torah be burned rather than entrust them to a woman. This were the, these, were the, these were wise sayings back then. At this time, you, uh, women were discouraged from being taught the Torah because it was believed that their minds were incapable of understanding that there was a, a certain intellectual poverty, that they couldn't process the information and learn this kind of stuff. And In fact, women were seen as slaves to their husbands just like a slave would be to their master. Back then, a woman was taught to be quiet. A woman was taught to uh, be out of sight, uh, to not be in public. Her face was to be covered. Uh, this was just very, very common. All the attention actually went to the men. Men were promoted. Women were not promoted. Uh, get this. This is incredible. Yeah, gentlemen, ladies, women were not allowed to shop. They weren't. I personally would like to bring that back, that particular tradition back. I think it would help us all out a lot in the name of Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, no shopping, ladies. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's just, <gasps> you know, some people like, I don't know about this message. Everything in the message was great until he said that. Um, what a shift, though, over the centuries because back then they weren't seen. They were hidden. They were covered. Now they're uncovered. Now they're exploited. Now it's, they're, they're, they're out there in the open. And I think basically the, the truth is that the, there's an enemy behind this that takes and uses exploitation and extremes to do the most destruction. And so whenever you see extremes, you should think or wonder or, or just ponder maybe there's something behind that. And I would submit to you there, there is an enemy that's behind that. And so women could not be citizens. They could not uh, own property. They couldn't have you know, uh, legal status. They couldn't uh, receive an inheritance. They couldn't file for divorce. They had the same status as a slave at this time. After the birth of a child, you, you, bring, you, you, you carry a child for nine months. That baby would be born. It would be brought to the father. After the cord was cut, it was actually a symbol of the, the relationship or the disconnect from the mother and a connection being made primarily to the father. If it was a boy, it was exalted and it was, it was, it was favored. If it was a girl, the father wouldn't even touch the girl, just make sure it was fed. And there was great disappointment upon the father. Men married girls very young at this particular time. In fact, if they were affluent, they would marry children. They would marry children. They would marry girls as early as 12 years old. 
The reason being it was tactical was to be to make sure that a woman wouldn't be older in order so that she, so that she would be more less prone to assert herself and assert her will and resist. And so it was kind of a tactic to foster control. And they were considered uh, when the rings were exchanged. This wasn't a sign of covenant as we describe today. It was a business transaction from the father uh, uh, to the husband. This was the sign of ownership. That's, that's where we were. No role, no rights, no public speech, veiled. Much like in some cases a Muslim woman might be in other parts of the world today. And so it, I say all that because amidst this context, the Apostle Paul is introduced kind of into the story. He was raised in this. Is it possible, do you think, maybe it might have had an impact on him? Do you think it might have conditioned him a certain way? I, I venture to say it would. So for, so for Paul to be known next to Jesus as one of the greatest liberators of women is a miracle. It's a miracle. And so I want to just kind of highlight that and say, pay attention. Why? How would something like that happen? If you were raised in that, how would you behave? And I want you to realize something. Write this down. Realize that if Paul can change, you can too. So gentlemen, if you have certain paradigms, if you're really honest and you're all by yourself, or, or ladies, if you have a certain thinking that, that needs to be renewed, I want you to know something. If the apostle Paul raised in this can change, you can too. Paul was raised in this environment. In fact, his resume is disclosed uh, prior to his salvation experience in Philippians chapter 3. Here's what it says. I, Paul, was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's something they bragged about back then. I wouldn't brag about that. But anyway... <laughs> I'd be like, uh, next, um, I, he says, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. The apostle Paul, we know him as such, but he was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He walked, he talked, he behaved uh, like a, the religious elite. He was a zealot. He was known uh, to pursue, persecute, and kill Christians for the purpose of creating a pure, perfect Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews in that he kept the law. What does that mean? 613 rules, he said he kept them all. And his view of people, you know, not just uh, uh, women, but his view of barbarians, his view of, of Gentiles, all that was, was very, very strict, very, very uh, prejudiced. And amidst all of that, this guy get, comes to a place of, of life change on a road to Damascus, the Bible describes. And the scripture says, uh, he, he describes himself as one abnormally born. That means he didn't come to Christ uh, by grace through faith, through a message from a person or from a one-to-one -one interaction with somebody who, who said a prayer with you. Nope, he was, he was spoken to directly by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And his heart was changed forever. But his character wasn't changed right away. His character was changed over time. In fact, it was obvious that he had some things to work out because he was a Pharisee who now became a, a, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. And then he tried to go back to Jerusalem because he was a big shot before, tried to be a big shot and argue with everybody, and they kicked him out. And they put him on a boat and they shipped him back to his family who rejected him because now he's a convert. And then he has to leave there. And he's all alone. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 1 that he turned his eyes towards the desert. Uh, kind of uh, Arabia into this, this wilderness desert. And he, and, he, and he goes out and he's, he, he's in this dry place. 
And I think sometimes, gentlemen, uh, men, women as well, I think sometimes we're in a dry place in our relationship. We're wondering why it's not working, why there's this friction, why is there this tension, and we don't know how to manage it. It's in that dry place we need to look for answers that don't come from humanity. They come from the creator of all things. Can I have an amen? And so while he's there, the Bible tells us in Galatians 1, he was taught by revelation from Jesus himself. And, 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 and I guess, I don't know how to say this, but this is, this is true. You can trust me on this. The spiritual realities were, were revealed to him by Jesus. He was able to see clearly into matters of doctrine and practical Christian living. And, and, and he was able to overcome uh, this, this kind of spirit of enmity by receiving a revelation from God. And so the things that, the way he looked at people, the way he looked at the world, the way he looked at humanity, and specifically I would say even women, all changed because he got a revelation from Jesus himself. And so the answer to this spiritual problem, listen, for all of us, just like Paul is, we need a revelation. You can write that down. You need a personal revelation in order to change women, your view of yourself, men, your view of women, we need a revelation. Guys, you need, to, you need to seek the Lord about this. Don't just go to certain texts in the Bible and, and pull and extrapolate one little verse to kind of make your case. Look at how it's working out when you do that. And look to Jesus to really kind of shape your beliefs and impart those beliefs to you. Ask Jesus to talk to you as I asked him to do for myself about my wife and her role and her worth and her value and her voice and her gifts. And, 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 and it's Jesus himself, honestly, that brought about the biggest changes and will continue to bring about those changes in my life. And it's the same for you. In Galatians chapter 1, look at Paul, look at what he said. Galatians 1.12 says, I received my message from no human source. No one taught me. Instead, I received it by, look at this, direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Everybody say that. Direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion? How violently I used to persecute God's church? I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors, but even before I was born. God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace, and then it pleased him to do what? To reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim the good news uh, to the Gentile world. And so God did a mighty work in him by him first receiving a revelation. And when he did, he had insights into the, what we now know as the New Testament where we learn uh, about 90% of our doctrine comes from the Apostle Paul, what he received by inspiration in this revelation. That was a lot of words there, but basically what I'm saying is... He got it from Jesus, okay? And so the things that we learn about salvation and grace and faith and the spirit-empowered life and five-fold ministry and all of that, it all came in this period. He was in a three-year kind of cable connection, TSL, whatever you want to call it, super link between the spirit of God and Paul's brain. And everything began to change. And then out of that, he gets a vision for the church, but he's disconnected from people and nobody will receive him because he used to kill Christians. And then God sends Barnabas to him. Barnabas' name, he's known as the encourager. And Barnabas, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, goes looking for this guy. It's very hard to find him. And he finally finds him in the city of Antioch. And he comes to Paul and he spends time with Paul in relationship. So we can have a heart change, as we say here at Connect a lot. And that comes from God. But our life is changed in the context of relationship 
Okay, is everybody tracking with me? So you got to have a heart change. That's between you and God. you got to receive that from God. But you work it out. Your, your beliefs, your, your heart, boom, change. But your behavior has to be worked out in relationship. So, uh, so the encourager, Barnabas, is sent to Paul, and they start working through these things so that Paul could do what he was called to do uh, to the Gentile world. And he later becomes kind of a new man. And that's when, in this season of relationship with Barnabas, he realizes uh, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That came during this time with Barnabas. Is everybody tracking with me? So Jesus gave him the revelation, and Barnabas helped him work that out so that there were no distinctions anymore. So write this down. You need to be in relationship after you get your revelation. And then crazy stuff starts to happen. Amazing stuff starts to happen. Are you guys getting something out of this message? I'm enjoying this myself, okay? So Paul, after that, goes to this crazy city of Corinth where there's all kinds of craziness happening and sin, you know, on the doorsteps and, and all kinds of just nuts stuff. And he's going there to kind of witness there. And on his way there, he meets two missionaries. Uh, the missionaries' names are Aquila and Priscilla. And yeah, some great names. You should see all the names in the Bible that I want to talk about today, okay? And so, so he goes to meet these two, and they've been rejected from where they are. But the Bible describes this kind of relationship uh, a certain way. In Acts chapter 18, look, it says this, verse 1. Then Paul, he's traveling, left Athens, goes to Corinth, and he became acquainted with, in one translation it says a certain Jew. This one it says a, a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy, Oh, by the way, with his wife, Priscilla. So in some of the translations, it actually, in the original language, is basically saying, Aquila's here and Priscilla is here. There's this, she's kind of the afterthought in this, uh, in this uh, text. It's, it's Aquila and, oh yeah, don't forget about Priscilla. And so they left um, Italy where Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome and Paul lived with and worked with them. So they were tent makers. But Paul comes alongside them in relationship with them and historically he was with them for 18 months during this particular period of time. And Aquila, the husband... Uh, was kind of antiquated in his view of women. He had not received the revelation that Paul had about everyone, but including women. And so Paul spends time with both of them, and in the process of spending time with them, he discovers Priscilla is loaded with gifts and very, 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 very gifted woman. In fact, she's a teacher, uh, she's a writer, she's a communicator. And so he begins to empower what the husband never saw. What the husband couldn't see. In fact, she begins to preach and she begins to teach. In fact, the, uh, the, first, the second and third century translators of scripture said that many of them said they believe she was the author of the book of Hebrews. I'm not saying that officially. I'm just saying some people actually believe that, uh, that Priscilla was so gifted she might have been responsible. The authorship of Hebrews is something that's been debated for centuries. I don't think it's a big deal, but I'm just saying wouldn't that be interesting after all of this that she was the one who actually wrote that. I can't wait to meet her in heaven and find out. And so... For this 18-month period, Paul's empowering her. And I just think it's so interesting how many women are very, very gifted who are being overlooked, maybe even being suppressed, and how many women are in their thinking are not realizing God has a divine calling. He has abilities inside of them to be used in the marketplace, to be demonstrated more profoundly within the home, to be seen in the local church. 
And Paul is a liberator of women, and he liberates this woman Priscilla so that whenever you see this couple introduced later in the Bible, from that point forward, everything changes. In fact, in verse 18, here's what happens. There's a flip. Uh, It says it like this. Then he set sail for Syria, Paul, taking with him, look at this, flip, Priscilla, oh, and by the way, Aquila. In fact, you see it in all the other texts. In Romans chapter 16, you see the same thing. Whenever they're introduced, boom, it's a flip. Why? Because Paul released this woman, empowered this woman. I want you to see something, boys and girls, men and women. Paul was a liberator of women, not a restrictor of women. And so after that, Paul does the unthinkable as a result of this revelation, as a result of the fact that there's no distinction, male or female. And he, as he, was, a, he was a church planner. He starts all these churches, and what, you know what he does? He invites all the women to church. And before that, women weren't allowed in church. He does the, un- what? What's going on here? All these women start crowding into the church. Women are now invited. It was crazy back then. They'd never attended a public assembly before. And so when you look at these verses and texts that get everybody all freaked out in the book of Corinthians and Timothy and other spots, know this. Paul was just trying to bring order to the fact that women had never been in church before. They didn't know how to behave. It wasn't that they were intellectually uh, uh, diminished. It wasn't that they couldn't process it. they just never been there before. Paul was bringing order so that both of them could be together, not they'd be separated, isolated, or seen as different. Does that make sense so far? So that's kind of the background. So when you see texts in the Bible, which we'll do a few of those, well, you got to see that within the context of what was happening. Women hadn't been in church before. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven five, you see Paul. Uh, you see Paul and with women, churches praying for uh, women praying in church for the first time publicly. Women prophesying in church for the first time uh, publicly. In in essence, Paul as a liberator was being used by God to redeem a woman's voice. That which was lost in the fall was being applied and put into practice in the local church for the first time. Paul was a liberator. Is everybody getting this? Some of the women are like, I'm shocked this was really happening back then. But that's, that's where a lot of this stu- stuff came from. So, so wait, 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 Pastor. What about, the, what about these questions, though? What about these issues? I just want to say something to you first and foremost. Write this down. Don't ma- make minor issues major issues. So no matter what, if you don't like my answers, that's fine. That's fine. You can, you know, you can email me at idontgiverip.com. That's fine. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying... But I just think these are minor issues. And I would venture to say, if you saw the context, you might better be able to understand the text. Okay? But don't make minor issues major issues. So the submission question, 1 Corinthians 11. You know, what about, isn't, isn't, aren't men over women? No, it's not what it says. In 1 Corinthians 11 it says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. See, it says the head of the woman is the man. That that word, the man, is referring to, in the original language, husband, not all men. I'm not over your wife, and you're not over my wife. That's, that, that, so this misrepresentations, if I was over all women, then people would be telling people when they could have babies. People would be telling people, you know, when they could have sex, what they could dress like. And you know what? Some of that craziness has happened in the church. And it's just straight up crazy. It's a misinterpretation of a verse. And what happens is people go into the Bible and they're panning for gold off the top, but they're not seeing the real gold down beneath. 
They're not seeing what's really going on. These scriptures were not meant to uh, control women, but to empower them in the first place. And so a lot of times when you see a verse and you see man, it's referring to husband in the original language. If you see woman, it's referring, it's referring to the wife a lot of times in the original language. What about the silence question? First Timothy 2, it tells women to be quiet and, and learn in silence and with all subjection and, and not to usurp authority over the man. Once again, that word the man is referring to uh, husband and so and what are we saying there the husband has headship not leadership headship is primary responsibility in other words you can't have authority gentlemen if you don't assume more responsibility your authority and your responsibility are connected they're not mutually exclusive and so, so nobody wants, my wife's not trying to break away from my headship because she's grateful that there's protection, covering, and sacrificial love laying down my life for her. But when I try to control her and manipulate or get what I want or selfishly serve me, well then, yeah, she's going to have a hard time coming under that kind of headship. Does that make sense? But we both lead in our homes. We both now lead in our church. Amen. And so, anyway, I could go all day on this, but it's, the, I think what God wants here, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 34 as well, God is trying to say, uh, uh, the, the hurdle is that men are typically prone to being passive spiritually, and women, uh, as a result, uh, because of that absenteeism, they take the authority away. And so God is trying through the Apostle Paul to say, let's not have the relationship between husband and wife, men and women, out of balance. Don't be passive, gentlemen. And ladies, don't try to steal or take something. Uh, God's trying to bring health to the relationship so that we work alongside each other in perfect harmony, hand in glove. Amen? What about the speaking question? That's another one. Titus 2, uh, 3 through 5 talks about this. All I would say is that I've addressed this already uh, and said how God released Mary Magdalene. He released the Samaritan woman. Uh, there are many other people in the Bible that God used. Annas the prophetess announced Jesus' arrival. Uh, Miriam led in praise and worship. Deborah was a general. She was a prophetess as well. Um, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, you can read in Romans 16, Tons of examples of women who came alongside the Apostle Paul and did ministry. They were pastoring and ministering to people. Crazy names like Phoebe, <laughs> Andronicus, Junia. One of the women here was referred to in the same way and language as an apostle. Uh, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa. These were twin sisters who were pastors. Julia and Olympus. I bet Olympus was pretty strong. I'm guessing that. Uh, she was a female. She was probably a little rough. Anyway, um, <laughs> Philippians 4.2 talks about Euodus, Syntyche. These were women that ministered alongside with the Apostle Paul. They weren't secretaries. They ministered the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there's just tons of examples, but a lot of times we only highlight this, but we throw away that, and we're highlighting this out of context and taking an isolated text instead of seeing that Paul was doing that to bring order, not to continue to see separation of women. A special question is, can a woman be a pastor? Well, uh, I would just say this. We already did that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, that it talks about in 1 Timothy 3, it says, this is what it says in many of the translations. It says, if any man desires the office of a pastor, elder, or bishop, uh, they desire a noble task. That particular translation, the King James translators put in and inserted man. The original Greek says, if any one 
desires to be. A pastor, a bishop, an elder, they desire a noble task. And so isn't it interesting that male translators inserted their definition into that instead of taking the original Greek language that was inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us by the Apostle Paul. But if you want to argue that, that's okay. I just want to encourage you with this final statement on this particular aspect. Don't make a situational circumstance a permanent stance. Here's what happens is, I think all this that I just said is people take what Paul was trying to do to address the church, to address male-female relationships, to to address gender distinction. He was doing something that was situational, but now over the centuries, man takes that and makes a permanent stance. Women are to be silent. Women are to have their head covered. Women are not supposed to speak. Women are not supposed to lead. No, 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 no. That was a situational circumstance not meant to be a permanent stance. Does everybody get that? That should set some people free, certainly some women. Amen? But here's the main thing that I want to do as I kind of wrap this message up. Is, is I want to deal with this spiritual problem, and I want to deal with it specifically to women, because I think some women here, you, you, you might have been under this without even knowing it. You might be under it, and you know it, and you might need some mind renewal on this whole thing. I, 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 my goal in this whole series was to empower women that you have a divine calling just like men do. You have a calling to lead, a calling to lead. All of you do. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, I'm just going to uh, kind of paraphrase and read aspects of this story. It says, it's, it's, it's Jesus is talking to a woman who went to church, and he was kind of a guest speaker at church. And while he's speaking, he identifies and notices a woman who has been bent over for 18 years. She's been in church, but she, she's been going to church, but she hasn't met Jesus There's a lot of people here, there's a lot of people listening online that go to church, but they never meet Jesus. And so the reason sometimes things don't change is because we're trying to address the problem from the outside in instead of from the inside out. We're trying to address the problem uh, of the fruit of the problem and not addressing the root of the problem. The reason that women are oppressed, the reason that women are minimized, the reason uh, women are objectified is not going to be solved from an external solution. It's going to be solved by a spiritual solution. Can I have a better amen in this house? And so Luke 13 verse 10, it says, On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit. Everybody say, by a spirit. It's a spiritual problem. And it's not going to be addressed programmatically. It's not going to be addressed from a great sermon, a song, a seminar, or some kind of a thing that you read online, or, or some kind of information exchange. It's a spiritual problem. And it says she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. See, God wants you, in order for you to be straightened out, you have to be straightened up. And so when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. So he sees this woman amongst all the men and the women. He sees some woman at the back, and she's bent over looking like probably like a human question mark. You know, maybe she had a nickname, uh, people, because she'd been that way for 18 years. Her health problem was also a habit problem. She'd been thinking this way, behaving this way, uh, walking this way for many, many years. And the Bible says he puts his hands on her. She comes forward. He puts his hands on her, on her and it says immediately she was straightened up. How do I know it was a spiritual problem? How do I know it was a demonic problem? Because if it doesn't go away, it's probably a spiritual problem. 
It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that this problem that we've been facing historically upon women is a spiritual problem because it hasn't gone away through any man-made method, and it won't. It's a spiritual solution. And it's Jesus that's going to help women stand up tall and stand up straight and stop being bent over and, and oppressed of the enemy for the rest of humanity. And the Bible says that he raised, put his hands on her and he said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and she praised God. Indignant because he had healed on the Sabbath, the senior pastor of the church gets all upset and says, We ain't having this in my church. No women are going to be straightened up here. No women are going to be standing tall in my church. Who do you think you are healing on the Sabbath? You should be doing that the other six days of the week. Who are you to come in here as a guest speaker and do that? And Jesus gets all upset back in his face and says, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath unite your ox or your, untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it and give it water? Then should not this woman, daughter of Abraham. Everybody say that, daughter of Abraham. I'll come back to that. Whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. And when he said this, all the opponents were humiliated, but the people that were around that delighted in the wonderful things that he was doing. See, you need to know something, girls. You're just like she was a daughter of Abraham, so are you. You come from that same seed. In other words, Jesus said, because of her father, she should be set free. Because of her relationship. But you know, when you're bent over, you can't see your father. You can't see the solution. I need you to know something, girls. This isn't going to be happening because he changes or because, you know, uh, the pastor's message on Sunday morning or because of, you know, some kind of uh, information. It's going to be something you receive directly from Jesus. But you've got to come out of the crowd. You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to stand up tall. And so I'm asking all the ladies right now, I want you to stand up because I want to pray for you. And I want to release some of you by the Spirit here. And I don't know if this resonates with some of the ladies here. Some of you it will, some of you it won't. But Jesus dealt with the root issue. He did not deal with the fruit issue. Her problem, her problem was not that she was crippled. It wasn't just a physical problem. It was a spiritual problem. And the reason in some cases you're crippled, it's the reason some of you are, are sloped over and bent over and not being used by God, it's a spiritual issue. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, especially, especially the ladies here, I just want to pray for you where you are. If the problem is a demon, they can't be, it can't be resolved by a doctor. It can't be resolved by a teacher, or a sermon, or a seminar. Satan had her bound. And I think we've been addressing the wrong problem for many, many years. Many, many years. But it's addressed by coming to Jesus. And she made her way to Jesus. And I'm just asking you, ladies, wherever you are, don't give the enemy any more permission any longer to, to oppress you and to hold you back and to cause you to shrink back and to keep you bent over. I'm calling ladies to stand tall. I'm calling you to straighten up in the spirit, not to, not to try to uh, resist uh, godly authority, no, to come under it, but, but, to, be, but to be able to, to straighten up so that God can straighten out this messed up dynamic, this disordered, distorted relationship. I come against the spirit of enmity between you and your husband, between you and men, and I rebuke the enemy, Satan himself, who has tried to oppress women for hundreds of years, but in particular right here in this church, I would just say that you are a daughter of Abraham, that God wants to bless you. He wants to use you. You are a daughter with rights. 
and I'm not going to operate like that senior pastor was in this, in this scripture. Uh, I'm not into programs. I'm not into just getting my thing done. I'm into seeing people, people set free. Jesus would do anything. He would go against tradition. He would go under, over, around, anything he could do to release people and to see them set free. And so I pray that women be set free in this house, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you would begin to reveal to them the things that have lied dormant, the things that have been asleep, the things that have been locked away in the spirit of every woman. Some of the people in this room are writers. Some of the people in this room are authors. Some of the people are going to raise champions who do great things for God. Some of you are going to do great things for God publicly. Some of them behind the scenes. Some of them in the marketplace. Some of them in the church. Some of them, you know, in, in different ministerial responsibilities. God, release this church in Jesus' name. Psalm 6811 says, The Lord gave the command, and many women carried the good news. And I thank you in advance for what is coming into this church because you're bringing a healthy picture. The voice of the father that's been removed from the home is being strengthened. And the voice of the mother that's been removed from the church is being strengthened in the local church. And we call it done in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Come on, give the Lord a big hand clap. Come on up, Jason. God bless you guys.